logistics, okay? Freaking logistics, man. Ready to talk logistics? But how? It can't be done. We should probably figure out some logistics. What I think is really important, what really creates a great customer experience is timeliness in response to customers. Tell them the truth, get in front of it, and communicate frequently. Right, like this is the need it now economy. It's it's that you know on demand economy, and not to conflate that with fast shipping. It's more so when there's an issue, we need that addressed asap. That's Matt Hertz, co-founder at Second Marathon, a three pill matchmaker. Second Marathon helps brands find the right third party logistics providers to support their business and growth. Prior to Second Marathon, Matt started his operations career as a six ever employee at Rent the Runway. After that, he became the first full-time employee at Birchbox, followed by operations and business partnership roles at SHIP. In 2017, Matt co-founded Second Marathon to help emerging and high-growth e-commerce brands solve complex supply chain issues. On today's episode, Matt discusses the challenges behind the early days of Rent the Runway, what he thinks emerging brands should look for in 3PLs, and why communication should always be the number one priority. Really hope you enjoy this conversation, but first, a brief word from our sponsor. This podcast is powered by the team at Stored. Turn your supply chain into a competitive advantage. Go to Stored.com to learn more. I'm your host, Alex Kent, Director of Sales at Stored, and this is Supply Chain Therapy. Matt, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. Really excited to chat with you. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on and super excited about the conversation and learning more about Second Marathon and talking about some e-commerce trends. So, I guess with that, start us off and tell me about Second Marathon. What are you guys doing and, and how are you supporting some of the brands that you work with? Sure. Yeah. We, so we are, we are a consulting business. You know, started the business about five years ago and have been in partnership with my uh, business partner, Ryan, for much of that time, really working with emerging high growth e-commerce businesses, solve a lot of the same complex supply chain challenges that Ryan and I faced at our respective startups uh, previously. So both Ryan and I come from the operating world, myself and, you know, I believe we'll get into this later in the conversation, but been part of a, a, a number of startups in different supply chain roles, as has Ryan. So we've really taken our collective experiences to support the next generation of brands solve a lot of the same challenges that we faced earlier in our operating careers. Yeah, well, tell me a little bit about that. How how did you get into the supply chain industry? Where where did you work before? You know, prior to Second Marathon. I will answer this two ways. My e-commerce career really predated my professional supply chain career. Back in 1999, gosh, you know, over 20 years ago, when I was in high school and getting into high school, I actually started a sports cards and collectible business. And, you know, up in Canada, I thought that the name Red Leaf, like a maple leaf cards and collectibles was a fun name. So I actually started buying and selling sports cards on eBay Canada and and prior to that Yahoo auctions. And, you know, I went international really quickly, you know, dealing in paper checks and money orders and cash. This was before PayPal and Venmo. So that was really my, you know, as a 10 or 12 year old, that was, that was my initial foray into e-commerce, obviously there was a logistics component because I should have at least shipped something every time money came in, you know, running to Canada Post, my local post office to to mail things. But more professionally or, you know, post-college, you know, started my career in finance, actually. That's what I majored in college, worked at a hedge fund for a couple of years in 2008, 2009. And then, you know, given, you know, the state of, you know, the economy back then, you know, many of us could probably empathize with that. I actually decided to join at the time, what was the first startup I was a part of, uh, Rent the Runway. 
you know, women's dress rental business. Many of you are probably familiar with it. Join them actually in more of a finance slash accounting role. You know, I'm, I'm not an accountant by background. It's not a skill set of mine, but, you know, I was pretty good at Excel and I spent the first couple months of my tenure at, at Rent the Runway. When, when, when I joined, I was the fifth or sixth employee. So I joined quite early on and sat next to, you know, our buyer or merchandiser really helping him put together some of his initial purchase orders um, and really think through, you know, how do we want to add inventory as the business scale? So I did that for the first couple months, as I mentioned. And then Jen and Jenny, the two co-founders and co-CEOs, realized that there was a pretty big gap in our operation. We really didn't have anyone who knew anything about operations. And at the time, I knew nothing about operations. So it was a little odd that I was told to you know, move into the operations. But given that I was on you know, work visas at the time and you know, I couldn't be unemployed and I just kind of had to keep my head down and say yes to everything. So lo and behold, I found myself in operations, pick and packing women's dresses, you know, labeling boxes and, and uh, fulfilling orders. So I did that for the uh, ensuing year. And then I met the, the co-founders of Birchbox, you know, women's uh, beauty subscription box company, which was you know, really one of the pioneers in, in sort of modern subscription Join them as their first employee, naturally their first ops hire as well, and you know ultimately help them scale to about a million orders a month over the next few years while I was overseeing supply chain. So you know those were kind of two of my earlier you know CPG startup experiences. You know after that I left Birchbox to join Ship in San Francisco. I spent some time there, you know a little over three years at the company. You know really helping them develop their their operations and partnerships, and then. You know, as I mentioned earlier, decided to, you know, once I got my green card, which gave me the ability to be self-employed and start my own business, started doing a bunch of consulting and advising about five years ago and eventually formalized it into what is today known as Second Marathon. That is awesome. And, and we are definitely going to dive into some of that background. And, you know, I, I think it's fascinating that just the, the Rent Runway story and the Birchbox story and how those came together and being that early employee and, and kind of diving into operations and, and figuring it out, right? It's those are those are some great, great stories and definitely want to learn more. I guess when you when you're not only at Birchbox and Rent the Runway, uh, but even with some of the brands that you guys are working with now at Second Marathon, what are the biggest issues that that you see from scaling a brand up from say $10,000 to over a million dollars in sales and, you know, especially regarding the supply chain? You know, part of the challenge is that e-commerce is still relatively new, right? You know, I know many of us have been on Amazon, you know, I've been customers of Amazon and other e-commerce, you know, eBay, other e-commerce sites for 10, 15, maybe 20 years. But the way at which e-commerce has really accelerated over the last, I mean, really over the last couple of years, but more broadly over the last decade is really phenomenal. So, you know, I also still think we're very early on in the, you know, life cycle of e-commerce. You know, I, I think the latest stats I've read suggest that e-commerce is only about 20% of total retail. And while I don't think that e-commerce will ever be 100% of total retail, it's probably north of 50% at its peak. So we're still mathematically early on, you know, in the first third of ultimately what could be, you know, the total market share of e-commerce. So it's changing quickly. And there's so many, what I call e-commerce newbies, right? There's so many people who, you know, Alex's candle shop, you know, that you started yesterday, probably on Shopify, 
where after, you know, a couple hours of, you know, fiddling around on Shopify, you have a theme that looks really great. And, you know, I go to your, your, your hypothetical website and, and, and it looks pretty sharp and you can start taking orders because Shopify makes it so darn easy. And, you know, if you have a little bit of money and capital, you can, you know, invest in SEO and marketing and, and Instagram and Facebook and all that good stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, you start taking orders and now, you know, Alex and, you know, I know I'm picking on you, but just to, you know, keep with this uh, 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 analogy, you, you know, Alex, who has no prior experience in operations and logistics, maybe you're good at sales or marketing or, or, or creating, you know, now has to worry about, you know, where do I get packaging? You know, where do I get boxes? And how do I get boxes? You've probably never heard of Uline, right? That's not, you know, a, a name of a company, you know, you know, Staples, but you probably don't realize you can buy boxes at Staples. How do I ship product, right? You know, do I get a a ship station account or a shippo account or uh, you know some other you know do I go to a UPS store and, and walk over with my orders and, and ship them from there you know how do I actually fulfill you know do I do it myself do I outsource it to a third party and you know Alex probably doesn't know what a 3PL means right that's that's kind of industry jargon so there's so many unknowns and you know I think the final frontier of friction in the e-commerce experience is logistics it's the physical aspect. It's the, it's the part that's really tough to scale. So I think so many merchants, so many creators, so many entrepreneurs almost neglect the supply chain and the physical aspect of e-commerce. And I think, you know, the last couple of years, it's, you know, as, as supply chain has become more of a um, household term and something we hear a lot about because of all the issues that the supply chain has been uh, held victim of, it's only now becoming something where people are really acknowledging that, you know, that's a potential significant challenge and pain point for many emerging brands. Yeah, I think it, you know, dead on and, you know, so much of it is you can have a great idea and come up with a great product and launch it, you know, in a matter of a week through Shopify, right? But where does that operation start? And how do I even wrap my head around all those things you said, the packaging, the shipping, the even, you know, when do I outsource versus I can do this from my garage and then, uh-oh, I'm growing and I, I got an influencer on Instagram or, you know, I went on Shark Tank and, and I blew up and now I can't keep doing this from my garage. When do I go through that outsourcing process? When do I find that partner? How do I contact that partner? Who's out there in the marketplace that wants to deal with me and this growing this growing brand? And, you know, so much of it too is really what you said, the, the logistics experience is the customer experience and not the, the customer as in the brand for the logistics provider, but the, their consumer. And how do you get that consumer to c- keep coming back? And some of that, you know, it's sure you can do it through marketing and, and getting the, the retention and, you know, lifetime value of that customer. But some of it, if they have a poor fulfillment experience and that package doesn't show up for two or three weeks, they're never coming back. And they're going out and saying, yeah, I ordered this, never got that product to my house, never really got to enjoy it, was really excited about it when I purchased it and, and I put in all my information and, you know, they charged me for it, but I never got it or I ran out of time. So anything to add on to onto that or any other thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think the point you made around, like, there really isn't good sources of data or content or insights to understand what to do or how to do it, right? And, and logistics, you know, operations, supply chain, I, I kind of use those terms synonymously, but like it's a very old industry. Like e-commerce is new, but logistics is old. 
oftentimes it's very fragmented. You know, I think in small parcel, you know, in final mile, it's not as fragmented, but certainly on the fulfillment side, it's really fragmented. There's lots of options. Just Google how to fulfill my e-commerce orders. You know, there, there are many, many options, you know, some of whom pay for marketing, others you could find more organically. Logistics is just, it's just so fragmented. There's so many options, you know, on the small parcel side, there's, there's fewer options, but certainly on the fulfillment side of the house, there's so many options. Just Google how to fulfill an e-commerce order. There's literally thousands and thousands of warehouse options here in the U.S. And it's, it's very, it's a very opaque market. And it's for many, for many brands, for many individuals, it's really tough to crack the nut of like, who is the right partner for me? There's not a one size fits all solution. You know, no two brands are the same. And what might matter to one brand or one customer may be less important to another customer. So being able to distill this universe and to, and to sift through this universe of options to identify the right logistics stack for your specific business is a big challenge. Yeah. There's, there's also way more resources to figure out the marketing tech stack on, and how you build off of Shopify. I mean, Shopify has everything almost for you anyway, right? But there's no, there's no one out there besides Second Marathon really helping to build that logistics stack. So, you know, when you talk to some of the brands that, that you work with, what metrics are they focused on? You know, they're all high growth sort of companies. They, they want to continue to grow, whether that's through retailers or through, you know, even growing their e-commerce business. What are they worried about? What are they focused on? And, and how do you infiltrate some of that into, into your selection process of, of, of that logistics stack? So, you know, kind of answer that a couple of ways. There's the obvious, or I, I shouldn't say obvious, but there's there's a number of performance metrics, you know, operational metrics, you know, SLAs, as, as they're often known as, you know, service level agreements or KPIs, key, key performance indicators that you want to hold your logistics partners and, you know, talk about fulfillment here for this sake. But, you know, when it comes to a, a 3PL or fulfillment, there's, there's a few key metrics that you want to hold your partner responsible to. Obviously, fulfilling orders on time, whatever, you know, agreed upon metrics, you know, maybe it's, you know, 95% or 99% same day, you know, if you send them the orders by a certain time, accuracy is obviously important. It's one thing to fulfill all the orders today. It's another thing to do that accurately, you know, inventory control, having accurate inventory counts, um, typically receiving new products. So when you have an inbound shipment, hit the warehouse, you typically hold your warehouse partner accountable to receive that in and to identify any damages or any short ships within, you know, an agreed upon time. Similar for returns, you know, if you get product returned back from a customer, typically there's um, a standard by which, uh, you know, the warehouse has to receive that back and, and sort of audit that, that return. So there's a few key metrics, you know, on that side of the house. Candidly, I've always, you know, back in my operating days and, you know, today working with brands, we've always found, I've always found it challenging to hold a warehouse accountable. Typically the data that you get to manage those metrics is data that the warehouse provides. And it's really, you know, it can be bought in its data. You can sort of mine it any which way to make it look appealing. So it's typically hard to manage your warehouse accountable, which is why, and you know, this, this probably isn't great to say, but it's, it's generally how we think we almost focus more on the, on the partnership, you know, the account management in general, not like harp on each of those SLAs. It's important to have them in the contract so that, if push comes to shove, there's something to lean on, but you don't want to have to look at that contract beyond that signature, right? For the duration of the partnership, maybe it's a year, three years or five years, right? And like, 
you want to, you know, whether they're 99% accurate, 100% accurate, or 90% accurate, you want a partner who you can, you know, who listens to you, who you can speak with, and who can really work with to, you know, who has your best interests in mind. And that, that to us, when we think about, you know, metrics is really what's, what's becoming increasingly important in the partnership. Yeah, that customer service level is so important. And we see it all the time, right? Is sure the SLA is the metrics, exactly what you said, you know, you want that in there from for when push comes to shove. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's about, okay, something's going wrong. What is that team doing to fix it in that fulfillment center? How are they fixing it? How are they communicating what's going wrong? Maybe their Wi-Fi went out, right? Things happen. Maybe, I don't know, one of the associates was sick and they're down an associate. Like, how are you telling me where I am and what metrics are you reporting on to, to show me, you know, what, what's my status for the day? Where are you with my orders? Where are you with my business? So, you know, I don't end up dealing with all the customer calls and saying, where's my order? You didn't ship this. I need this today because little Jimmy's got a birthday party he's got to go to and he needs a present to take, right? All, all those sort of things. Really quick before we dive into our, our next segment, talking about that consumer experience, right? What are brands doing? You know, what are the best brands doing now to focus on that consumer experience to get, you know, that customer coming back and, and repurchasing or, you know, telling their friends, going on social and, and talking about that brand? Because all those things are, are just sort of word of mouth and they help drive that brand's growth. I think what's most important, I mean, you know, when it comes to customer experience, instead of hypothesizing, I always like to put myself in my consumer shoes, right? And, you know, it's not so much helping brands, but it's more like if you are the customer, what makes an experience so great? And honestly, it's not necessarily getting the products same day or next day. I mean, obviously, that's great, but that's not always necessary. I mean, you know, obviously, there's an expectation with Amazon to get product quickly, but for most brands, and I think brand is the key term, the key word, brands often have the luxury and taking a little bit longer to get the product to a customer because it's not like a, you know, a laundry detergent where, you know, when I realize I'm out of laundry detergent after I did my wash today, I probably want that pretty quickly. So when I do the wash tomorrow or the day after, I have some replenishment. But for most brands, they don't need that fast shipping, that ultra fast shipping. What I think is really important, what really creates a great customer experience is timeliness in response to customers. So when the trains don't run on time, be it 1% of the time, 3%, 5% of the time, whatever it is, things happen as, as you said, Alex, maybe there's, there's something at the, you know, the Wi-Fi goes out or there's, uh, you know, you know, some, some technology that the warehouse runs on goes down, you know, there's, there's an AWS server that goes down, you know, anything that could happen. It's most important to be accurate in your communication to your customer, tell them the truth, get in front of it and communicate frequently. Right. Like this is the need it now economy. It's it's that, you know, on demand economy. And not to conflate that with fast shipping, it's more so when there's an issue, we need that addressed ASAP. It's insufficient. And you know, I know that there are three PLs out there where their customer service is essentially submit a ticket in their, you know, automated ticketing system and the SLA to respond is forty eight or seventy two hours. And like how is that possible, right? Like logistics, especially if I'm the customer, if I'm the ops manager, or the director, and I'm trying to communicate with my warehouse because, you know, there's a box on the pallet that is going to some influencer and they the wrong product is there. A PO hits the dock and I'm not, you know, I want to start taking sales and I'm not sure if the color, you know, if the Pantone is off. Like I need someone to go on the floor. And I realize this isn't, 
easy to scale, but this is really what, in my opinion, can create competitive advantage and can really differentiate the great from the good and the good from the less good, you know, the bad, you know, the average over the next decade are those that do things that are hard to scale, that are, that are easy to break. So whether that's, you know, FaceTiming the customer, showing them a picture, slacking them, texting, you know, whatever the community, like have that empathy as if you are the customer. Like when I have an issue, I want to be able, the last thing I want to do is be on a, you know, 1-800 number and sit on you know the line for an hour waiting for someone to pick up, right? Like I want to be able to talk to someone and it's not, hard to do that but it's difficult to scale but it takes money it takes investment but that can also lead to significant competitive advantage over time let's get into our our next segment all about challenges houston we have a problem matt we talk a lot about what you can do from a competitive standpoint to create that competitive advantage how you can differentiate your brand from someone else's brand how a fulfillment provider can differentiate themselves from other fulfillment providers. Let's talk about a little bit about the challenges that brands are facing. You know, we touched on it a little bit, but you know, if you could list the the three biggest ones in your mind, what what are those? Yeah, the three biggest. A few things that definitely come to mind are it's the fear of the unknown. You know, the fear of uncertainty is from what I've seen, you know, and working with literally dozens of brands, you know, annually, you know, they just don't know what's next, right? I think we all have you know, I don't call it PTSD, but certainly fear of, you know, what we've seen over the last couple of years, you know, even brands that have thrived and succeeded, you know, that had a lot of tailwinds from, you know, COVID and the pandemic are still fearing, you know, like it wasn't easy to get there, right? There's a lot of uncertainty in the heat of the moment. For many, there's still a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of fear of, well, what's what's around the corner and, you know, let's all knock on wood here. But, you know, I think the the challenge, which is hard to sort of quantify or even qualify it's like what's next right and now that we're all sort of ingrained to think about you know contingency and redundancy that's becoming you know a big a big challenge for brands i think another thing that comes to mind is just the volatility and freight pricing you know in you know i'd say transportation pricing broadly you know there's been a lot of um tales of uh of, of, you know, inbound shipping containers from, from East Asia, you know, from China hitting the West Coast. You know, I know, uh, some friends and, and peers of mine that sort of at the peak, um, maybe a few months ago were paying upwards of $25,000, actually even more for a single container where, you know, 18 months earlier, that same container cost maybe $5,000. So that's significant, obviously. And for many brands, they, have been unable to, or at the time were unable to factor that in to the pricing of goods, right? They didn't want to necessarily pass on that cost, but for most CPG brands, for many CPG brands, that additional cost is significant, has a significant impact on their bottom line. And then there's, you know, domestic parcel pricing, right? FedEx, UPS, the Postal Service, they continue to raise costs, fuel surcharges, which back when I started my career in operations, some 12 or 13 years ago, um, we didn't really think about fuel surcharge because it was such a de minimis amount. Now you go on UPS's fuel surcharge page and, you know, I think it hit, you know, in the high teens, you know, 15, 17% in the last couple of weeks. So like that is a significant addition, plus all the other surcharges that UPS and FedEx have been adding, right? You know, UPS is, you know, reporting record profits at the demise of 
in my opinion, many small businesses, which I suppose is another topic in and of itself. But, you know, volatility and, and transportation pricing is another concern. And then, you know, I think part and parcel with those other two is just the the uncertainty or the volatility and in, in business performance, right? It's it's really difficult to plan when, you know, many brands that saw significant tailwinds, significant growth during e-commerce, as, you know, much of this country has started to revert back to our old ways, right? You look at a lot of these metrics around, you know, grocery delivery, you know, the Instacarts of the world, you know, the DoorDashes that are delivering groceries to your door, which were obviously incredibly popular during COVID. Now that people are more comfortable going back to your your Publix or your Kroger or wherever you shop for groceries and doing things more in person, these businesses are starting to revert. And like, these are significant fast changes, like just how fast these businesses grew during COVID, they're almost relapsing um, as quickly. And it's really, really difficult to plan, you know, to, to plan, to plan inbound, you know, to plan, you know, to forecast with your warehouse when you're not sure what the next quarter might look like. There's there's very little stability with most CPG brands today. I think the unknown is the biggest challenge. It's kind of like, we don't know what the next challenge is going to be. We got hit with a pandemic. We got hit with these new freight costs. We've got ocean containers now sitting in China waiting to get loaded versus, you know, six months ago when they were waiting to get unloaded in the U.S. It's You don't really know. And it's just there's so much unknown that I can't imagine being some of these direct consumer brands and saying, yep, we've got this mapped out for the next three years. Here's our growth pattern. Here's the numbers we're going to hit because you just can't do that in, in this day and age. So coming back to Second Marathon, you know, how do you guys help brands wrap their strategy around that? How do you help them figure out their, their logistics tech stack? You know, what are the kind of the best practices that, that you guys infiltrate and uh, recommend to some of those brands? What we stress regularly is, I mean, given that, you know, we just don't know what's around the corner, unfortunately. I mean, no one does. What we saw as the brands that had the most success over the last couple of years in terms of mitigating risk, not necessarily financial success or revenue success or profit success, but were able to kind of ride the waves over the last you know few years have been those that hooked up with the right partners across their supply chain. And, you know, I realized I mentioned this a little bit in my in my intro, but finding the right partners across your supply chain, those that have your best interests in mind, who could almost serve as like de facto consultants, who can advise, who can coach, who have the precedent, who have the experience. I mean, there's something to working with operators who, and not to come across as an ageist, given that I'm, I'm proudly a middle-aged millennial, as I like to say, but there's something to working with folks who've been there, done that, right? This is not technology or not pure play technology. This is a very physical world. And it helps to have people who have seen something that at least looks familiar or similar to, you know, in the last couple of years, COVID, right? And realize there's nothing exactly like that. But what's important is having the right partners. And like, we can't stress that enough. And that's why when, when we support brands and 3PL searches or 3PL RFPs, obviously cost is important right? You know, cost to most businesses is a, is a logistics to most businesses is a cost center. It's a significant line item. I've never met an operator that says charge me more. But a trend that we've seen over the last couple of years is whereas price was, you know, the buck stopped at price and most brands were trying to find the fulfillment solution that was cheaper or less expensive than their incumbent, you know, almost trying to find the low cost leader, price is becoming less as the leading variable, the leading requirement, 
right? Obviously, operational performance is the most important thing. You know, as I sometimes joke, you know, if I'm at a 3PL that says, you know what, we're going to waive all costs. It's going to be free. We're going to ship every order free. We're going to pack it for free, ship it free. You, want, you don't have to pay a cent, but it's going to take two weeks to ship every order. And we're only going to be 50% accurate. I don't think that 3PL is going to get a lot of business. Now, there's, there's probably some that are okay with that, right? I guess if you have you know, one SKU and every order is a single unit, that's probably hard to mess that up too much. But what's increasingly important, kidding aside, is, is really finding partners, you know, vendors who are partners and who can, who have your back, who can help coach you along the way. And that's much easier said than done. You bring up a great point because there's the logistics industry, especially over the past couple of years, has, has obviously grown on the technology side. There's all these new technology advancements that are being made. The three pill broker industry on the freight side, you know, it used to be call them up and, and now I can find someone to ship my load just by, you know, going into a dashboard. And some of those providers are great, right? And, and they're cheaper, they're more functional, but maybe they're lacking that customer service. They don't have that customer service team that we touched on earlier to be able to pick up the phone and say, hey, where's my truck? They want you to go in and put a ticket in or, and maybe you'll get an email back before that truck shows up. Maybe not. But that that's a huge part of it. It's still very much a relationship game. And how are you communicating? How are you planning to communicate when something goes wrong, like we touched on earlier? So that, yeah, I completely agree with you on that. And the advice that, that you give to these brands as they're looking for partners, I completely hear you on that. Moving on to our next segment, the venting couch. So talk, vent. Come on, vent. Go ahead, vent. I just needed to vent. Where'd you vent? Vent your frustrations. We all have had traumatic experiences when it comes to logistics, but it doesn't have to be that way. If you're ready to heal your relationship with your supply chain, check out store.com to learn more. Any stories you want to vent about? I think I tend to be a, a glass half full kind of guy, so I I uh, tend to quickly erase, you know, adverse events from my memory and just kind of, you know, move on, right? Like, so, you know, I probably had a container fall on my arm and, and, and just, you know, quickly forgot about it. But, you know, not to digress too much, but, you know, I think, I think just being part of early stage high growth startups is, is a living show, right? Like talk to any operator who's spent, you know, especially those that were part of, you know, that were either the founding operations guy or gal at a what has become a large a larger scale operation or certainly part of the 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 initial you know operations crew like every day is a show right like you don't know what the hell's going on you know especially if you're kind of a pioneer in an industry in a space i rent the runway in the in this you know reverse logistics and you know a birch box and subscription like it was impossible for vendors to buy into you know when we told them that we would grow you know, 50%, 100% month over month in, in early months, like their supply chains, our vendor supply chains just weren't built to support us, right? And they and they never believed us. And then, you know, after enough months and years and growing at those rates, they, they finally came around. So, you know, every day is a living show. I mean, I, you know, to answer your question more, you know, with more of a sort of witty, you know, actual event, I mean, you know, I guess I guess the one that comes to mind is, you know, back in my early days of Rent the Runway, we were literally subtenants of a dry cleaners in the West Village in Manhattan. We had about a hundred square feet of functional space. And, you know, we had one, you know, if you walk into your local dry cleaners, I forget what the tech the technical term is, but there's that the operator pushes the button and the garments they kind of rotate to come to you. Like we had one of those double deckers. And we were in a dry cleaner, so incredibly hot. I mean, we were we were battling 
110 degree, you know, Fahrenheit degree days in the summer. And I'm sitting there, you know, scrambling through all the garments that are in like that, that plastic shell that dresses are kept in running around a dry cleaners, trying to memorize women's designer dresses, which, you know, I'm certainly no fashionista. So it was just a, a mess. And then in the winter, you know, lugging dozens of boxes in my arms to the local UPS hub down the street from us, you know, these are early days of Rent the Runway because UPS either didn't show up or couldn't show up because of the foot of snow that we would get some afternoons. And I was literally marching half a mile to the hub, you know, in the West Village so that we can drop these boxes off to make women's, you know, dress miracles the following day or, you know, the following couple of days. So it's a ton of fun. It's it's sort of like a business MBA is, you know, spending a couple of years at a high growth, early stage startup is just a, you know, a memorable, exciting experience. The word to sum that up is scrappy. You do whatever it takes to get it done. And and whether it's grit or, or scrappiness, you're, you're going to do whatever it takes to please your customer and, and help grow that business. That is, I couldn't imagine being in the West Village in 100 degree weather in, a, in a, the back room of a, a dry cleaners when it's you know, 120 degrees. Wrapping up, two more segments here. We'll go into the, the future segment. What are some lessons we've we've all experienced a lot over the last two years, whether it's being a consumer and and having our our worlds flipped upside down or uh, working with brands and even working with fulfillment partners? You know, what what are you taking? What two lessons are you taking from the last two years and uh, or or just one lesson and, and implementing into the future? What are you looking at? As cliche as it sounds, I think having having a game plan is important, like know what your options are before you need them. Right. Yeah. As, as I hear, um, flight attendants often joke, you know, on airplanes, like read the main, you know, when, when you're sitting in the emergency aisle, you know, they encourage you to read it before you need it. Right. And like, that's very transferable here. Right. Like, don't just make a game plan so that your boss, you check off that M for your boss, like really know what your options are. And that sort of goes into, you know, having redundancy, having resiliency, which are two different things, but related things. So, you know, I think, Given the craziness and the unpredictability, as we as we discussed earlier, the fear of the unknown, or, or or just the fact that we don't know what's next, be it good, bad, or ugly, know what your options are. Talk to different people. So you might love your current fulfillment provider, for example. What happens to that fulfillment provider? You know, if a natural disaster happens, right? If there's a weather event or something happens where it pauses for two weeks, like it's really difficult to strategize and make thoughtful decisions when you have the gun to your head. So when things are in a bit of a lull, when, you know, hopefully, you know, a lot of the the dust has settled over the last couple of years, now's the time to really think about, all right, what happens when something like this happens again? Like, what's another backstop? What are my options? And that that is so, so important in operations. I couldn't agree more. It's now's the time to, to build a strategy on, you know, what do we do if this happens and, and be crazy about it, right? Like come up with the worst possible ideas because who knows? Hopefully none of those bad ideas happen, but at least you have a plan in place. Predictions. What, what predictions do we have on the e-commerce industry, on, on brands that are growing, on where the e-commerce fulfillment providers or logistic providers, parcel providers, where they're going? What do you have as for predictions for the next two years? And uh, in two years, I'll call you back and tell you if you were right or wrong. <laughs> well, I... I, I... I think at the at the highest level, I think most of us have have at least some level of job security for the foreseeable future, 
you know, logistics and e-commerce continues to be a really great crossroads to um, make a paycheck or, you know, make, make income from. So we are pretty protected there. So that's great. You know, being part of a, being a, uh, vendors or or partners to an industry, you know, e-commerce that's, you know, depending on who you ask or where you get your data is, you know, six or seven hundred billion dollar industry just here in the US growing at 15% annually, you know, adding a hundred billion dollars of value for the foreseeable future is really a fantastic place to be. And I, I, I can't think of any industry at this scale that has this type of growth rate. So really great place to be in, which is, you know, should give most listeners of this podcast some peace of mind. But I think, you know, on a more adverse perspective, I suppose, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, obviously in the near term, you know, there will continue to be, you know, inflationary pressures, um, you know, like we mentioned earlier with transportation costs continuing to be elevated. I, I think and hope and pray that we've hit the peak and, and the peak was, you know, probably a month or two ago, as is indicative, just rates in the market. But they're still well above, you know, the levels of a couple of years ago. And, you know, wages are going up, you know, employee wages are going up, which I'm supportive of. But, you know, there's also a lack of industrial and warehousing space, right? It's very tough to find space anywhere at any cost, right? So there's a lot of headwinds from that perspective. But, you know, e-commerce is, is certainly not a trend. It's not abating anytime soon. So um, it's a really, really good market to have exposure to. Good stuff. Wrapping up our session here with uh, Matt Hertz, some some quick hitters. And I might go off the cuff a little bit. I know we prepped a little bit on this, but got some ideas here. So we'll start with your favorite country music artist. You are a Nashville resident after all. Oh yeah, well it's a well I I I will hedge a little bit and um is it favorite ever or you know favorite modern slash favorite sort of classic I mean I I love the old stuff you know the the Hank Williams George Jones Merle Haggard but in terms of more modern stuff I mean you know Garth Brooks it, you know he did he did wonders to you know country music and made it more commonplace so um yeah I get I get really excited anytime Garth is in town Someone must have told you because I've seen Garth six times I had the pleasure of meeting him, Trisha, once in Nashville, and I would go to a Garth Brooks concert. You tell me where, let's go together. I mean, I'll, I'll drop everything. What a storyteller. All right. Favorite book to recommend right now? Uh, well, my, my, my favorite book ever is, well, I'll kind of answer this a couple of ways. My favorite book to recommend is, is Dale Carnegie's you know, How to Win Friends and, and, and Influence People. I, I read it every January, every year. I think it's just a great book. It's one of the most popular books in history, but also probably one of the most underrated books. But, you know, when it comes to like other books, I mean, I love, I love uh, the box, you know, kind of the story of the shipping container. And, you know, I enjoy reading books on different businesses, you know, Phil Knight's uh, Shoe Dog and the story of um, Southwest and Herb Kelleher. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many great books out there. If you didn't work in supply chain, if you never got into operations, I know you studied finance in college, but what would you be doing? Or what's the dream job? When you were in second grade, what was your dream job? Where I would realistically work is probably finance, unfortunately, just because that's, you know, what I grew up in. But where I would want to work would be in sports and probably more on the management side, you know, the front office side, not an agent. My, my, my younger brother is an MBA agent, but, and I see how, how, how challenging that is and how much of a grind, but 
you know, I love sports. I love, I love media and entertainment. So probably some, some management role in that realm. All right. Favorite baseball card from back in the day when you were trading baseball cards online? Well, I never, I never owned this and still don't own it, but my favorite baseball card is obviously the 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle rookie card. I mean, that's just, that's the, uh, the gold standard as a, as a, as a huge Yankees fan. I know Alex, uh, we don't see eye to eye on that. You being a Braves fan. Yeah, Mickey Mantle is um, hard not to love. That's very true. If anyone could get their hands on it, I think anyone would take that card. So, all right. I have a feeling I know where this is going with the Yankee talk, but top three dream dinner party guests. Well, are they are they are they dead or alive? Either. I think de- dead, dead or alive, or both. They can be both. So, my top three dead would probably be Einstein, Abe Lincoln, probably Picasso. But only because I would try to have him scribble something down on a piece of paper so that I could sell that later as art. So that would be my thought there. I mean, in terms of alive, it would be Warren Buffett. I'm a huge Warren Buffett fan. David Letterman, my favorite comedian of all time, and probably Tom Hanks. I just uh, I, I, I'm, I'm so enthralled by by him as an actor and as a as a human. Yeah, I, I saw you were watching uh, Tom Hicks movie the other day. I saw you tweet about it. Oh, Castaway. Castaway, yep. Yeah, exactly. With, All yeah. right. Well, Matt, thanks so much for joining. If folks want to reach you, what's the best way to get in touch with you and, and chat more about uh, some of the topics we discussed today? Yeah, I'm on I'm on Twitter. I'm, I'm uh, pretty vocal there. I, I, I think my screen name is, uh, or my, my handle is Matt, M-A-T-T, the letter A, and then my last name, Hertz, H-E-R-T-Z. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn secondmarathon.com. There's ways to reach me there. So yeah, we'll love to chat with anyone. All right. Good stuff. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. That is a wrap. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for listening to this episode of Supply Chain Therapy, a podcast brought to you by Stored. Make your supply chain a competitive advantage. Go to stored.com to learn more.